Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, October 14th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Y-Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so uh, let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we've been up to. Uh, actually, let's start with Jacob, because Jacob, you were off on Friday. You took like a long weekend. What were you up to? Uh, as I talked about last week, I was doing a haunted house excursion in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, which is the massive uh, cities uh, cityscape that uh, is Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington, and like the goodness, must be dozens of smaller cities and towns like wrapped up in there. And unlike Austin, there are literally dozens of haunted houses and haunted house attractions in that area serving the millions of people. So, And for years, I've wanted to head out there and spend a few days just doing haunted houses, doing as many as I could. And this year, I managed to do it. So I visited four haunted houses. Uh, between them, there were, there were, I believe, 13 individual mazes. So I spent a great deal of time uh, <laughs> having people jump out at me uh, in dark hallways. Uh, so do you want me to start from the worst to work my way up or start with the best to work my way down, Peter? Well, I, I have a question. Jacob, did you visit the most haunted house of all, the Texas School Book Depository? We actually seriously considered doing that during the day, Chris. There is a museum there now. Wait, wait, what, what is that? I'm confused. That's where Lee Harvey Oswald shot oh, Sean F. Kennedy. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, I totally missed that joke. Yeah. Uh, let's start with the worst and work our way up. Yeah. I'll, when I say worst, I, I, I had a good time at all of these. Uh, I'll say that straight up. Uh, but in terms of the actual one I was least impressed by, and even I still had a great time, was Screams Park in Waxahachie, which is about 45 minutes outside of Dallas. And this is on a location where there is Scarborough Fair, a massive Ren Fair every year. So during September, October, November, they turned Scarborough Fair, the Ren Fair, into Screams Park, which is a massive complex uh, of haunted houses. And the overall experience is a lot of fun. Like the moment you walk in, they've transformed the Ren Fair into such a Halloween carnival. There are lights and decorations and actors dressed up 
and smoke machines and just all kinds of like atmospheric things happening. Like all the food stands are open and, you know, there's gift shops and people doing tarot readings. And uh, like it's, it's pretty much it's literally a full fledged festival uh, with a Halloween flavor to it. And that alone made it worth it. Like we, we, we ate, you know, bad carnival food and we you know, did carnival games and we just sat around and enjoyed the atmosphere. It was a nice cold night in Texas. And there were five haunted houses there. And taken individually, they are definitely the weakest houses I did over the weekend. They're very much, you know, temporary things put up, you know, because the main bread and butter of this location is to be a Ren Fair. So, uh, like, you know, they have, they have like a zombie themed one, a castle themed one, a pirate themed one. They're all pretty generic. And the actors very much had a high school students uh, getting a part time job air about their performances. Uh, you can always tell when the, the good actors were the ones out wandering the actual grounds, the ones controlling the lines, like the ones who were like out there entertaining the masses. Whereas the, ha- the haunts themselves were pretty much full of actors who were jumping out and going, and hitting the wall and going back to their position. Uh, so, Screams Park, if you're going for like top notch haunted houses, you know, kind of weak. Uh, I didn't get particularly startled by any of them. Nothing. I, I was never scared. I never felt the need to bolt like I do in some of them. Uh, but in terms of like a place to bring a family, a place to spend an evening, a place to like really get in the Halloween spirit, Screams Park is a lot of fun and it was worth the time for sure. Uh, so, and, and the other thing I wanted to ask, ask you about, yeah. Jacob, because you're, you're treating this just on scares alone. Like, how's the theming? Like, how's the immersion? Uh, the, the immersion on those, not great. Like I said, these are very, they, they feel very temporary. They feel like, let's put up some walls, let's, you know, fill it full of, you know, Halloween props. And it feels very bark and basement compared to other ones I've been to, uh, both in Austin and in Dallas. So, like I said, if, you, if you're going to Screams Park looking for full on immersion, looking for like truly talented performers, and looking for, you know, next gen cutting edge haunted houses, there are options in the Dallas Fort Worth area. I'll get to soon enough. Uh, but I cannot recommend Screams Park for people who are looking for anything other than, you know, a casually fun Halloween festival experience. Do you go to these haunted houses to be scared or is it about the immersion? Because for me, it's more about being like engulfed in that other world. Uh, both. I mean, like, for example, uh, House of Torment in Austin, which I spoke about last week on the water cooler. Uh, it's a house I've been to so many times. Even when they change it, I'm comfortable there. I'm familiar there. I don't get scared there anymore. But I'm always looking for the new gags, the new uh, makeup, the new animatronics, whatever new rooms they've built. I get in on, on the immersion. So on one level, yeah, I, the immersion is becoming number one thing. But I'm always chasing, chasing the dragon of actual scares, looking for a haunted house that'll actually scare me again. Because, you know, I'm so used to the ones I've been to um, and I'm so used to really superior haunted houses that, you know, when one does not scare me, you know, I'm not bummed out by it, but I'm always looking for that. I'm always hoping something will scare me again. Okay. What's one step up from Scream, Screams Park? Uh, I'm going to jump up to uh, Reindeer Manor. Uh, called this because it is the site of an actual place called Reindeer Manor, this big Texas estate, where in 1900 uh, there was a murder-suicide, and the uh, old mansion that's there and the old barn that's there are still standing. They're out in the middle of nowhere. You're driving on a long dirt road to get there. You're overlooking all these cow pastures. And when you get there, someone has bought the old mansion, bought the old barn, and has turned the entire land into a haunted house theme park with four houses. So you're actually wandering through the old mansion. It's been turned into a house. You're wandering through the old barn. It's been turned into a house. And they have two other temp- more temporary-type um, uh, houses as well. And this place is, is – when you get there, at first I was not sure if I was impressed or not because it's very much – there's a lot of – uh, duct tape and redneck pluck holding Reindeer Manor together. It is um, at first I was a little concerned because it looked ramshackle, but then I realized that ramshackle aspects were kind of the charm of it 
because um, they actually are, you know, we actually are wandering through an old, you know, 150 year old house. You are in a, uh, an ancient barn where it feels like it's not up a code. Like I feel like if a city inspector came here, they'd be horrified. So it actually felt dangerous in ways that were actually really scary and satisfying. The two smaller houses uh, were okay. They were, they were fine. But the larger houses, the one in the barn and the one in the actual Ranger Manor, were uh, incredibly satisfying. That's where they put their best actors, at their best effects. And while they weren't as polished or as, you know, cutting edge other ones I've been to, these uh, were just actors having a really good time digging into the scenery, taking advantage of the fact that you're going in and outdoors, um, the fact that, you know, you're in these ancient buildings, the fact that you wander outside into the cold air, and suddenly you're outside on a wide path surrounded by trees, and you wonder, oh, God, where is somebody going to come from? Because in so many haunted houses, you can have telegraph where the actor is going to be based on where the dark corner is or where a trap door is. But in Reindeer Manor, because they're in these existing locations, moving in and outdoors, uh, you just never know where they're coming from. And some actors were clearly better than others. Uh, like the, what the main theme of the main house this year was um, – Werewolves versus vampires. So you're so you're wandering through werewolves versus vampires, both trying to get you. And we came to a point where we met an actor playing a uh, werewolf hunter, all decked out in like hunting gear with a big like uh, crossbow, and he literally stopped us and like held us for like two or three minutes. Uh, and we later later realized it's because he was like there to prevent bottlenecks, there to keep um, groups from you know rubbing up, rubbing up against each other. Um, but he was incredibly entertaining and improvised the entire scene with us, and we had conversations in character, and. Like the whole thing was just incredibly uh, fun uh, in in that ram in a ramshackle way in a way I, I appreciated um, that you know here are some people with a really cool location not the most fancy effects budget but damn it they they put on a show and they're not gonna you know they're not gonna let up they're not going to phone it in even though they may not be as gla glossy as other guys out there and it was put this way there are at least four or five locations in this uh, little area where massive flamethrowers will erupt in the sky for no reason at all other than the fact that it looks cool. So once I started realizing, oh, you're doubling down on flamethrowers everywhere, I fell head over heels in love with Reindeer Manor. <laughs> what is better than Reindeer Manor? This is where I have the top two, and they're ones that I'm torn over which one is better because they're so different. But I'm going to give the next one to Cutting Edge, which is uh, located in Fort Worth, and it has a Guinness World Record holder for longest haunted house in the world. Their website claims 55 minutes. My group went through in 35, but it was also, we were there right at opening. It wasn't as crowded, so we think that maybe that's something to do with it. And Cutting Edge is famous because it's in a 150-year-old meatpacking uh, plant that was abandoned, you know, decades ago. So it's this massive, crumbling industrial space that they've transformed into this massive haunted house. And this place is impressive for a number of reasons. One, the sheer size is intimidating. And to the actors, they don't talk. They don't make noises. Uh, we notice that they're all trained to be entirely movement. And they're all clearly trained because th th I've never seen actors better at being still, better at blending with their environments, better at creating physical senses of dread in you. Uh, I've never seen performers who are more command of their actual bodies and how they use their forms to create scares as opposed to, you know, vocals or sound effects or screaming at you. And... There's no real consistent theme in Cutting Edge. You kind of go from area to area, and um, some rooms are like pitch black and foggy. Some are immaculately themed. There's an area that uh, literally simulates a tornado hitting a house, and the entire house like shaking and, wi and wildly back and forth around you while wind hits you and alarms go off. And, and you, but you go right from there to like you know evil concept chainsaw. So there's no, no real consistency to that. But uh, this haunted house, 
what is all about making you feel lost, making you feel alone, making you feel absolutely terrified. Uh, this is the closest I've come to finding Elon Musk actually scared me again. I was asked to lead the group, <laughs> so I was so I was in front of the entire time. And the, the kind of masterful thing with design of Cutting Edge is that you feel hopelessly, painfully lost at all times, even though there's always just enough guidance for you to get where you're going. And so many hot houses, you know, telegraph where you need to go. And Cutting Edge walks that line where you never, you're ne you always feel like, am I going the wrong way? Although you never are. <laughs> so I was really impressed. But I will say this much. One thing that was initially a little disappointing, but it's actually brilliant in retrospect, is that the world's longest haunted house thing is a, maybe a bit of a cheat. Because every 15 minutes or so, you come to another room with a queue line, and there's an employee in it. And what they do is they, they stop you for only a few minutes. And they essentially um, have you queue up again in the middle of the haunted house. And they hold you for just enough time so that you enter the rest of the house alone again, or your group alone, so that there's never any bottlenecking and no one ever bunches up. I, we never had a point in this haunted house where we ran to another group. We were always alone. And these additional queue lines, even though they kept, they kind of interrupt the experience for a few minutes, made sure that the bulk of the house, we were always, you know, as isolated as we could be. And each uh, waiting area also had a live band in full monster makeup, like performing very loudly. So it kind of kept your blood up as you were, you know, still waiting. So I could I could argue that Cutting Edge is really four or five haunted houses, you know, all in, in a row, as opposed to, you know, one world's longest haunted house. Uh, but I feel like I'd rather have those breaks and guarantee you being alone in the rest of the house and having the experience as is intended than, you know, just going through with a large group. So that was Cutting Edge. And man, I cannot recommend it more highly. I, I don't like none, none of the LA haunted houses like feel like you're in there alone. Like it always feels like you're in a, a a line of people. And sometimes there's like some space in between you and the people in front of you, but it, it does feel like you never feel like you're in that room by yourself. Yeah. Um, the, and you did mention like not knowing where to go. It feels like you're not knowing where to go. You're going to like go out a door that's wrong. In the 10 years I've been doing Halloween Horror Night, I think 10 years, something like that, I've been doing Halloween Horror Nights. That's never happened to me until this year. This year I was in a maze. Uh, it was like Pandora's box. And I got to a point where there was like a, you know, you could go left or you could go right. And there, there was a person working there that kind of like made a gesture for me to go left. So we went left, uh, Kitra and I. And we found ourselves outside the maze in an area where, like, there was, like, dozens of workers putting on makeup, putting on, like, you know, demon, demon masks and stuff. And I was like, uh, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> we turned back and went back in. It was kind of funny. Uh, okay, so what is your favorite of the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, haunted events? This was a tough choice because I love Cutting Edge so much, but I'm going to give it a dark hour. This is in Plano, Texas, which is a little bit north of Dallas. And this was a full-on, like, multi-million-dollar operation, Peter. It has the production value of a Universal Studios event. It had massive animatronics and crazy lighting. It had a pre-show where actors came out on a stage and acted out a storyline for you to follow, complete with pyrotechnics and stunts. Oh. It is open year-round. It changed its, its show once a month and sells season passes, so you keep coming back. And... Every single room is immaculately production designed. There are details everywhere. There's no room where it's a black wall with dark lights. No, every single room, even in darkness, is completely designed 
Uh, so, like, you can f- keep on seeing more and more new things. Every actor is in a unique costume. Every actor has their own character. They are doing their own voices. They are doing a performance. They're full-on crazy performance. Uh, the theme this year, this month, was was vampires. So, like, the, each, each one had like different. Each, each one was like a character doing like their own vampire, doing their own accent, their own voice, their own performance. They're talking to you, like waiting for responses, improving with you, chasing you, actually like engaging with you, and the production values were off the charts. And unlike Universal. Uh, there's no like sense of you know being in a long line. They they actually do space things out really well. So you're in this massive special effects field haunted house that lasts a good 30 minutes, and with actors who give a shit. They give so much shit. They are they are really into their performances and really having a great time. And there's just a sense of humor here too. Like it's never as scary as Cutting Edge. Cutting Edge is a visceral experience that wants to be uncomfortable and upset, whereas this is an experience about like laughing and having a good time constantly. And like there was a, there was a, there was a uh, actor clearly doing Gary Oldman from 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 Dracula. There was an actor doing Cuba Sullivan from um, The Lost Boys. There was a big rave scene where literally one actor was dressed as Blade, like ushering us through there, like escorting us through the scene. So like it was, it was really really funny to see all these references. Really funny to see actors committing their characters, and uh, it just like I was just blown away by every room. There was not a single room where I said, "Oh, this feels lazy or cheap." Every single room was like, "Oh, if you turn on all the lights, this would still be impressive." And then even after that, they have a second smaller house, which is an, an asylum-themed haunted house, where it's a much shorter experience, and you and uh, much, much more contained. Like we're going with maybe groups of eight in that main house, where they want like groups of three or four for this little house. And the the, the draw here is that it's shorter, but where they put their best actors. They had all the uh, actors who were really physically and vocally doing extraordinary work in this smaller house. And later on, I realized after the fact that. They were the actors were in communication with each other. They were using misdirection to set up other actors. Like one one actor would lure us in one way and and talk to us and put us in position, so another actor can get in position and come up from an angle we never saw coming. And the actors would like we you, you could see the gears turning if you knew how to look. You could see like them working like rappers in Jurassic Park. You look at the one <laughs> to the left, and the other one you don't see the actors coming from the sides. So I feel like it was even though it's a much shorter house, the second one. Or just a package of oh wow this is a place like a, a clinic in haunted house performance and how the actors pull it off. So Dark Hour not like I said not as terrifying and upsetting as Cutting Edge. I never felt like I was lost or in danger, but it was such a polished blockbuster experience powered by actors who were giving it their all. And I want to go back so badly, knowing that they're open year round for new new shows every month. I am thrilled by Dark Hour. Very cool. I'm excited to do more haunted events as like in in L.A. Like I've gone to all like the big mazes and stuff, but like there's I'm I'm excited to go to like the home haunts where people like build like these haunted houses in like their backyards and stuff. And that usually kicks off like next week or the week after. Uh, Do you do any of the home haunts? I've never done any home haunts. I'm doing my research for next year's Dallas Fort Worth (laughs) house visit already uh, because everybody in my group wants to do it again. So I started a list of like twenty more houses to start, you know, fine tuning, <laughs> including some well known and well recognized home haunts in the Dallas area. So next year I'll let you guys know. There's no home haunts in Austin? Uh, Austin is a Austin is a like uh, desert for haunted houses. Other than House Torment, which is what I talked about last week, and Scream Hollow, which I'm going to hopefully this weekend, there really aren't any at all. Like not even home haunts. I mean that's crazy I, because I would think I, that like yeah. that whole like Alamo Draft House like like there's like a culture of like horror and I don't know just like a film and I feel felt like people I mean we know like Eric Vespi is our friend I know he like 
decks out his house with a lot of stuff, but like that's not like a home haunt. Um, but like there's nobody like doing that kind of stuff. Nothing that I know of, and like no one of note. Whereas like you literally Google Austin Texas haunted houses, and you find like six houses with four of them not open anymore. You Google Dallas Fort Worth haunted houses, like here's 50 haunted houses. Like what the hell? And I know it's because Dallas Fort Worth is serving a much much larger audience, but Austin needs to get his act together because as much as I enjoy my haunted houses locally, like the Dallas area is like a treasure trove. I'm just surprised because Austin is just such a creative place and you'd expect there to be more of that. Anyways, um, I spent my weekend at comic conventions and theme parks. Uh, I went on Saturday to Los Angeles Comic Con. This is the convention that used to be called Stanley's Kamikaze. Uh, and changed its name, and I'm guessing we'll eventually have to change its name again because Comic-Con in San Diego owns the name Comic-Con, I think, at some point. (laughs) And uh, this usually takes place on Halloween weekend, which leads to there being a lot more cosplaying costumes than other comic conventions because everybody just shows up in the thing that they're going to be wearing for Halloween. Uh, But this year, it was a couple weeks early um, and had a little bit less in terms of costumes uh, we, I just walked the show floor, saw all the goods. This is more of like one of those conventions where it's, uh, you know, the dealer hall, it's just more vendors, like people, you know, selling their things and selling vintage toys. And there, there really isn't that many booths set up by big corporations. So it's, it's fun to just like look at stuff and, uh, you know, admire all the old vintage toys. Uh, but it, it's gotten a lot busier in over the years. Like I feel like. Well, I, well, first of all, I usually go on a Sunday, and I'm, I'm assuming Sunday is a lot uh, less busy. But this year we went on a Saturday, and it took us, like, over an hour to park our car. There was, like, lines uh, circling the convention center to get in. It was like a madhouse. So uh, if you're ever thinking about going to L.A. Comic Con, I would recommend going on a Sunday. So, yeah, uh, it was fun, though. A lot of fun was had uh we recorded some videos this will be up on ordinary adventures one today and one on wednesday uh on sunday we went to disneyland and uh it was also very busy i guess because of the holiday weekend it's a holiday today jacob is it a holiday no answer i I mean (laughs) i think it's it's columbus day right yeah It, it is it is columbus day where i actually looked this up there are numerous states where it's a federal holiday but i don't think anyone who works slash from is in one of those states. It, it seems like the news today is still going full s- swing. Like it doesn't seem like it's a holiday, uh, but apparently a lot of people get it off, so they take the weekend off. And it was it was very busy at Disneyland. Uh, I saw um, over in Frontierland, uh, they now have a magician who has uh, come into town on horseback and he's performing uh he may be one of four magicians actually and uh when i was there i saw it was my friend john armstrong friend of the show and he uh he's been on pen and teller fool us he's he's an amazing magician and he was there performing just kind of like like on the the side corner of the golden horseshoe uh, performing magic and it's uh, so weird to see him because uh, I'm so friendly with him and seen him perform so much over the years, performing in character with like an accent because he's like, you know, in all like Western garb and stuff like that. Um, but that is going on. And uh, I would highly recommend if you're a Disneyland annual half holder, check that out because 
you're getting you know this is a guy that performs in front of thousands of people on disney cruises and you know he travels the world like he's a big guy and he's just like there performing at disneyland because he loves disneyland so much and they 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 obviously invited him and, and paying him well probably I'm, I'm assuming uh but uh it, it is a deal and a half to see him performing there in frontierland so go go if you can check out john armstrong performing there we also recorded a video about that so look forward to that um we also went to galaxy's edge because why wouldn't we and we uh when i first went to galaxy's edge the first day that it opened i built a lightsaber and uh, we recorded a video about that. I that video now has almost uh, almost a million views. It has like seven hundred thousand views or something at this point. It is one of the biggest non Disney released videos for the uh, Galaxy's Edge. And um, at the time when I was building my lightsaber, Kitra did not have any interest in building a lightsaber. She she wanted to build a droid. She didn't um, care about lightsabers, but she filmed me building a lightsaber and when she did she was like oh i want to build a lightsaber like you know that the the experience is emotional i know brad talked about it on the podcast in the past and um so we went there and uh, a lot of people on our channel were like you know let's see kitra build a lightsaber so we decided to do it she did build a lightsaber and it was an emotional experience she did cry multiple times we recorded it on video that's going to be up uh, probably next week at some point and um, also, while we were in in Disneyland and actually at Comic-Con, we met, I want to say, probably like three or four dozen uh, people that watch the channel, that watch Ordinary Adventures, uh, tons of little kids getting photos with us. It's really humbling, uh, really cool experience. Uh, we met one guy and talked to this guy uh, that flew in from Sydney, Australia, just because he saw our videos and wanted to experience it. And he didn't want to kill us. He was happy about it and thanked us. So that was uh, just so great. Uh, yeah. So that's what I did this weekend. Ben, what were you up to? Uh, my wife and I on Friday night went to the Pantages Theater here in Hollywood and saw the uh, touring Broadway version of Anastasia, which is based on the 1997 20th Century Fox animated movie. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie or not, but I was a big fan of it growing up. My family had the... Um, the soundtrack, I think maybe on cassette tape. Um, so we listened to that a lot in the car when we were driving around. I have a younger sister and she was really into the movie. Um, so we both sort of like got into it as like a family thing. Um, so I, I have a lot of fondness for the story of Anastasia, which is basically about the the last surviving member of the Romanov family in, in Russia and like whether or not this girl who has amnesia is actually, uh, you know, the, this uh, long lost uh, member of the royal family. Um, the Broadway version of this is uh, extremely disappointing, so I will not recommend that anybody go see it, but especially people who, like me, grew up with the 97 movie and are fans of that, because basically all of the best parts of that movie are just done here, but way worse. And it's it's and that's not even, that's not even entirely true because there are several. Um, uh, subplots and even major characters that are completely excised from this Broadway version, including the main villain of the animated movie, who is Rasputin, who's played by Christopher Lloyd in the movie. And he has this pet uh, bat in the film. And the bat is voiced by Hank Azaria. And it's this really funny, goofy relationship. Um, Rasputin is like 
he's he's basically like a he's like Scar in the Lion King amped up to, you know, 25 or something. He's he is just so theatrical and over the top. And I thought that that would be really interesting to see on a stage because that character is like inherently theatrical. He's like this mystic who, you know, is, is all into like warlock powers and conjuring demons and stuff. And I was like looking forward to seeing what that would be like on a stage. And instead they completely get rid of his character, never mention him at all and replace him with a Russian soldier named Gleb, who is just like the most boring uninspired character who is basically like hunting Anastasia as she sort of, uh, you know, goes on her journey. And it's just, man, this whole show is just so um, uninteresting and, and like dramatically inert. And it's just, there's, there's, I was like telling Amy, I was like this, whatever the opposite of dynamic is, that's what this show is because even the background dancing and stuff, it has some cool like graphics in the, the visual effects and screens and stuff that they have up in the background of the show. Some of that is like vaguely impressive, but you know, in terms of um, just commanding the stage and making telling it a story in an interesting way, this show did not do that. So we immediately went home and I watched the movie and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but Amy had never seen the movie. So even though I, uh, <laughs> I didn't like this play, I think I liked it a little bit more than she did because at least I had some awareness of some of the songs and stuff that they did in there. But yeah, I, I cannot recommend seeing Anastasia. If anybody out there was considering it, just watch the movie instead. That is disappointing. Y you know, there is a, uh, a play of one of my favorite movies going on right now in San Diego. It's almost famous. And uh, I, I've been thinking about going out there to see it because it's, you know, only a couple hours away, but I'm also worried that it's going to be disappointing. Because <laughs> Yeah. I think a uh, former slash filmer, Jermaine Lucier just went and, and saw it, I think this past weekend and said that it was not nearly as good as the movie. So yeah, maybe that'll save you a few hours there, Peter. Yeah. <sighs> I need to see it. But it, it, it's just like that movie is so, such lightning in a bottle, like the cast, the the song. I, I just feel like they can't do it justice again on the stage. I don't know. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Oh, nothing as fun as what you guys did because I threw out my back. I'm old, apparently. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, not entirely sure when this happened. I couldn't really pinpoint it, but all of a sudden Friday, like mid-morning, my lower back was in like severe sharp pain anytime I like twisted a certain way or stood up from like sitting in a chair. Uh, it's, it's awful. It's, it's just the worst. I have never like had an, a back injury or anything like that before, uh, you know, to where I could say after it on my back, I've, you know, pulled muscle muscles and, uh, you know, twisted my ankle and stuff like that. But this is the first time this has happened. And it was, it was the worst on Friday. I was getting through the work day for the most part, uh, you know, with I had took some painkillers and had like a, a hot water bottle on uh, my my back, and it wasn't really. It would get getting a little bit better, but still hurting a lot. So I ended up going to the doctor, and they gave me uh, a shot, and they gave me some muscle relaxers and painkillers, and so I pretty much spent my weekend trying to take it as easy as possible, um, sleeping on and off that kind of thing. So yeah, don't don't throw out your back. It's uh, it's real bad. <laughs> Yeah, my I, I've been having some back problems recently too. I'm I'm assuming it probably has to do with me, me being overweight uh, because I haven't you know done anything in particular that has you know 
you know, I didn't pick up anything heavy. I just feel like I need to lose weight. I don't know. Uh, or is it, Brad, is it we're old or are we out of shape? Like, what is it? I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit of everything. This, I, I, I imagine, because it's it's more of a when you throw your back out, it's like pulling a muscle situation as opposed to like a chronic problem. If you if you're having like chronic back pain, then maybe you need like a different mattress or something like that yeah. for your back. But and like a this is desk, Peter. There you go. But yeah, this is this is definitely acute back pain, and it's it's just it's not fun. Yeah. Okay. HT, what have you been up to? I went to Amazon's Modern Love premiere party. Uh, I got an invite from Slash Film cast David Chen, who actually was in New York for the premiere of this um, Amazon anthology series. Uh, And he invited me to the party, which was actually not uh, showing the first episode of the series, but was celebrating the opening of the Museum of Modern Love, which is an interactive pop-up exhibit promoting the show and... um, was made up of several sort of interactive fun little pieces like there was a family tree in which people could on on sticky notes write confessions to people they love and post it on there so that was really sweet um there was this place there's like this booth where you could have a you could confess your deepest secrets uh which was a little strange to do at a party but um they 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 printed it out for you or something and it's anonymous so that's that was interesting as well. And um, my favorite thing, a popcorn machine, which was really exciting for me because I went in not eating anything and was very hungry. So a, pop- a popcorn machine where you could customize your types of popcorns, including a truffle butter popcorn and classic popcorn, and then watch a clip from the show. And um, while I was there, I got to meet up with David Chen in person for the first time. I have, you know, guested on Slash Film Cast a couple times, but I've never met him in person. And he's exactly as I expected him to be in person. Just very amiable and nice and really smart and uh, and uh, uh, perceptive. And we, I hung out with him and uh, Devendra Hardware, also from Slash Film Cast, uh, who lives in Brooklyn. So we just uh, were at this premiere party for Had you ever night. met Devendra before that? I have. We there was. Um, you, you guys may remember me talking about the uh, face-off cage in the park okay. um, <laughs> play that I saw. So he was there as well, and we enjoyed watching that um, sort of show. And so this is our second time meeting. Actually, no, third time because we saw Gemini Man together. Um, and uh, yeah, we uh, met up with Patrick Willems again, who was also there, and uh, saw a few celebrity sightings. And Hathaway was apparently at this premiere party, but I did not see her. Who I did see was Andrew Scott from Fleabag. And I saw him twice, actually. He passed by me several times. And I was so just in awe of him that I didn't have time to take out my car- my phone and take a picture. I was just staring at him the entire time. So I have no pictures from this party. Uh, I do have a cool sneak pic of uh, Rachel Dratch from, <laughs> so that was really exciting, but uh, it was a, it was a fun time. It was, it was cool seeing and meeting David and, and um, seeing Devendra again and just hanging out with a bunch of people and having some great free popcorn. <laughs> Are we actually speaking to the ghost of HT right now? I cannot believe that you're in the same room as the hot priest and you managed to survive. I know, I know. He was wearing an all-white suit, too, and I was like, oh, my God, he's glowing. 
okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? Uh, real quick on this one, as I don't want to, this is very, very specific, is that um, uh, Leslie S. Klinger, uh, probably the most successful annotator and editor of these kind of things in the world, has released a new annotated H.P. Lovecraft Beyond Arkham. Uh, Leslie S. Klinger, he uh, released an annotated uh, collection of Sherlock Holmes stories a little while back. I mean, it's like the definitive collection of annotated Sherlock Holmes. He's also the author of the annotated Watchmen, the annotated Sandman, the annotated Frankenstein, annotated Dracula. Pretty much if you want like a oversized hardcover uh, version of a something famous full of footnotes and references that so you can kind of get an education in what you're reading, uh, Leslie S. Klinger is the guy. And this is his second Lovecraft collection. His first one tackled all like the major famous stories. This one is a lot more fringe lesser known stories uh but there literally is no better like if if, if if there's a book that leslie s Klinger is credited on as being the author of the annotations i will buy it in a heartbeat and this is the newest one and i recommend it wholeheartedly if you are looking for either a good horror collection or just want to learn a little bit more about what you're reading so that is uh the second edition of the new annotated hp lovecraft this one called beyond arkham Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching, which is actually the smallest section here, uh, or next to books. Uh, first off, let's talk about the Breaking Bad movie, El Camino, which hit Netflix th- this past week, and obviously not everybody has seen this. Originally, I was thinking we were going to do a spoiler episode about this, but I'm not sure. Like, Guys, do you think this is worth doing a spoiler episode? I don't think there's... like enough in terms of like twists and turns to talk do about. i need to mute my do i take my headphones off peter because i still have not watched this no we're not going to ruin anything for you okay. but I'm, I'm just asking the bunch here that had have seen it like is this worth us like spending a whole episode on because I don't... I don't think so no yeah yeah I, I i tend to agree uh i okay well first of all i was really highly anticipating this i'm a big fan of breaking bad i'm an even bigger fan of better call saul and i was so excited to see this that like on you know Thursday night Friday morning I almost stayed up till midnight just to watch it when it like went onto the service but I did not because I'm not a crazy person and um I we did end up seeing it on Friday and I this is kind of weird this is this whole well first of all uh it's weird that this film is called El Camino and I'm not going to get into that because uh spoilers but but I'll say that the El Camino car is barely in the movie. Okay, I don't think that's a spoiler to say that. Although I will say that you know Vince Gilligan, uh, in his time with Breaking Bad and also Better Call Saul, likes to use uh, titles that refer to two different, like it's two different meanings. And El Camino, I guess, means the path um, in Spanish. So, uh, so I guess that. Uh, so I guess there is a, a double meaning there. Anyways, I, I don't know. But okay, so about this movie itself. I almost feel like that. I wish this was a TV series more than it was a movie. Like it feels like it would be good to like each episode to have like some flashbacks to some stuff that sets up the current position that Jesse is in. But as a movie, it worked a lot less for me. Like the the flashbacks kind of like stopped the forward momentum of this story. And it felt like at times they were just kind of like retconning things. Not that they were like changing big things in the past, but like kind of like adding these moments to Jesse's past so that it would mean something in Jesse's future. Uh, I'm glad that um, I'm glad that he 
got his due and you know I, i'm glad that we got a send off for this character in whatever way it is um i it's also weird that and i'm, I'm not going to spoil anything or any of the characters that are back for this uh because i think that's part of the fun of this movie but i will say that uh one character in particular does not look like they did in the original series they are a lot larger and it's kind of weird um but that said, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I feel like uh, it wasn't, I guess, entirely what I wanted. Chris, what did you think? Uh, I actually loved this. Um, there was a lot of like mixed reactions to it, sort of similar to what you were just saying, Peter. So I was sort of like nervous going into it, but I genuinely thought this was pretty great. Um you know, it, it definitely, you know, can't stand on its own. It's definitely, you know, a wrap up to stuff that happened in Breaking Bad. But at the same time, it I don't know. I, I love the way it was constructed. I love the way it was filmed. Um, Aaron Paul gives probably like the best performance of his entire career in this because he's just so good and he gets to do a lot more than he ever really got to do on the show. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. It, it was a lot more like reflective and emotional and uh, melancholy than I thought it was going to be. And there's this um, sequence at the end that's like stayed, not really the end, but near the end, that's like staged like this old West shootout. And it's so well done that even if like the rest of the movie had been a disappointment, which I didn't think it was, but even if it had been this scene alone, like puts puts this like over the top for me just because it's so meticulously set up and the way Vince Gilligan shoots it is, is so cool. And I don't know, I really liked it. And I, what I, what I really liked about it was that it was sort of like, without ever like coming right out and saying this, it was a nice reminder that, you know, Jesse was like actually like the heart of that show or, or as Walt was like really a monster and the, you know, this weird thing happened with that shit with breaking bear when it was airing where everyone was like, not everyone, but a large majority of the audience was like really sympathetic to Walter white. And they were like, Oh, Oh, Skylar is so mean. Why is she so mean to her husband? And it's like, this guy is a murdering drug dealer. You're not supposed to have sympathy for him. And this movie sort of like takes a step back and it's like, you know, don't, you know, like forget about Walter White. He's he's a monster, and this this guy Jesse Pinkman is, you know, even though he has done terrible things, he's the redeemable one. He's the sympathetic one, and I, I really kind of appreciated that. So I don't know. I, I I liked it more than I thought I was going to. What world are we living in, Chris? I I feel like I, I expected you to be more bothered by the fan service that I was bothered by. And I feel like normally I love the fan service in this. I was a little bit bothered by it. It never really felt fan service to me. I mean, there's like one or two cameos that feel fan service like, but I didn't. I, I would you know, argue more than one or two, but. Okay. But I, I don't know. I like the, I like that the, they worked the cameos into the narrative. Like they didn't just have them show up and be like, ah, this person's back. Like they actually took time to have the cameos mean something in relation to the story they were telling. So that's why it didn't seem like fan service for the sake of fan service, at least in my, my humble opinion. Yeah. I want to be clear. I do like this movie. I just think it's not as great as breaking bad itself. Uh, HC, what did you think? 
Chris took everything I was going to uh. say out of my, my out of my mouth. I'm kind of upset by that. I really loved El Camino, and for basically the same reasons that Chris did, uh, I think that it was a lovely little coda to Breaking Bad and more of a compliment to the show itself. But I love that after you know, the feral scream that was the series finale uh, of Breaking Bad. It was just, just like this really nice, somber, calm wind down from that. Um, and yet, I think it does add more to what we see and what we know of Jesse Pinkman, um, a character who, like Chris said, is the beating heart of the show. And I think that the the movie cements that even more uh, in that like he can't help but love and try to, you know, and his compassion is kind of his downfall for a lot of it. And um, I I don't I didn't think that this was um, that fan service either because uh, I agree about the the cameos, I think being worked well into the narrative, even if at some points it's like, oh, it's that guy. I like him. Um, I think that if it were fan service, it would appeal more to the male fantasy um, aspects of the original series that I think a lot of people, uh, picked up on versus the more sobering arc that we actually get with Jesse Pinkman. Yeah. I, and... I don't think it's fan service in that. Yeah. In the way you're saying, like saying, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's fan service that like some of these characters seem unnecessarily inserted in here just for us to, as fans to be like, Oh, this is great. We get to have more time. I don't think that was the case though. I, I think that they played their, uh, the part that they needed in the, in the narrative and whoever, and like, this was Jesse's journey. And so of course he's going to reconnect or, uh, run into characters that we've seen before. So I, I think it worked well in the context of the movie and yeah, I, I just, I really loved it. And Jesse Pigman was for, is, is my favorite breaking bad character. And I love that he got his due with this movie. Okay. And uh, Ben, you also saw this. What did you think? I did. I find myself somewhere in between Peter and Chris and HT. I, I feel like I loved the, um, I mean, I, I thought it's like spectacular, spectacularly shot and the, you know, the, I, I really enjoyed spending time in this world again. I thought that it was like really suspenseful and a lot of like every single one of the set pieces worked like gangbusters for me. I thought, especially that that scene that Chris was talking about with the shootout was just fantastic. Um, but really the entire narrative, uh, I, I was completely sucked in and, and really loved the experience of watching it until the very end. And I, I feel like it sort of, um, you know, without spoiling anything, I just feel like the, the movie wasn't really about much uh, when, when it's all said and done, when you sort of like take a step back from it and, and look at it. And I guess, I don't even know if that's really fair to, to try to judge um, this particular piece of entertainment on, on that level, because it is so clearly a coda to, you know, a large series that had its own arc. But like, I don't know, I, I guess just for the reason to bring it back, I, I would think, I, I guess the reason to bring it back was just purely narrative instead of um, thematic or uh, I don't know. It just, it didn't seem like Vince Gilligan was trying to, say anything with this movie it just felt like he was trying to wrap up a couple loose ends and and tell a really um you know uh, give give some uh conclusiveness to a character that he really loved which is fine and and i really enjoyed that experience of, of watching it but i just ultimately you know with with a little bit of time away from it i just wish it was like 
more powerful. I wish it was about something more, but um, anyway, yeah, I guess I'm I'm sort of in between. Yeah, I think I, I felt that as well. Uh, one thing I will say about the cameos is I do love how it ha- it featured both big characters, but also like characters that played small roles in Breaking Bad history. Like there's some characters that are only in like one episode ever of Breaking Bad that come come back. So I, I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, okay, what else have uh, I've been watch- I watched um, a couple things this week that I'm not allowed to talk about. I watched Terminator. I watched uh, Hero Project that's coming to Disney Plus. I guess I'll talk about that at a later time. Um, but I can talk about Jojo Rabbit. I talk. Uh, I saw that by Taika Waititi. This is the story of a young boy living in Germany during World War II who has a imaginary friend who is Hitler, played by Taika Waititi. This movie is like it feels. I mean, it is a Fox Searchlight movie. It feels very much like a Fox Searchlight movie. Uh, it's hilarious and also uh, will make you cry. And it's it, it's great. It feels um, it, it has that those earlier touches. I the, Taika Waititi's earlier films, I felt like felt like he was trying to channel Wes Anderson in some ways with his style and tone of stuff. And this feels. Like he's far and above moved beyond that. Like it, you still feel some of that quirkiness, but it it, it just uh, I don't know. It, it, it's a great film. I I would recommend everybody see it. I'm not sure if I like it as much as Chris did, but it doesn't seem like everybody <laughs> liked it as much as Chris did. Uh, but I would definitely say it's uh it's gonna be you know in that like best of the year conversations at least in the top twenty. So you, you should go check it out. That's Jojo Rabbit uh, when that hits theaters. Ben, what did you see? So right after we finished the uh, the Broadway version of Anastasia, we went home and turned on, I think it's HBO, HBO Go is where it, you can stream it right now, um, to watch the 97 movie, which my wife had never seen. And she came away from that experience uh, even more disappointed with the Broadway show because the movie is actually really good. I mean, it's, it's short. It's like very much a product of its time in that it's like a late 90s uh a piece of animation from a studio that's not Disney that's very much trying to capture the Disney style. It's like um, they they use some uh, CG technology, you know, like the the uh, ballroom and Beauty and the Beast, how that looked, uh, you know, that was several years earlier than this. But they're, you know, you, you can see them sort of playing with the limits of technology at the time. But even like story wise, it's very like there's there are elements from Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and uh, all sorts of um and and Lion King in particular, a lot a lot of uh, uh, it seems like an amalgamation of a lot of different things, but it's still very very enjoyable. Like the the voice cast is great too. You've got Meg Ryan, John Cusack, Kelsey Grammer, uh, like I said, Christopher Lloyd and Hank Azaria, um, Angela Lansbury is in it. Uh, I guess strengthening the Beauty and the Beast connection there a little bit. Um, but yeah, this movie is a lot of fun. Has anybody here seen Anastasia? Do you guys know this movie at all? I have. <laughs> I, so, I have also seen this movie. <laughs> Oh, okay. So now I'm really interested. So, what, are are you guys on the opposite sides of the fence for me here, or do do both of you share the opinion that this movie is good? Oh, I love this movie. Um, it was definitely mm-hmm. one of my uh, constant in my constant rotation when I was a kid. Watched it over and over again. I even had a little plastic recreation of the music box from it, which played the song in increasingly warped manner as I kept using it i don't <laughs> think really it plays creepy. anymore yeah <laughs> but um i i really loved anastasia i think it it is very disney light 
um, especially of the time. But it's such a it's just charming romance that almost feels a little bit more mature than what Disney was doing at the time uh, and uh, had a lot of the sort of 90s rom-com elements that I think Meg Ryan and John Cusack were able to bring to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, I love Anastasia. It's great. What do you think, Chris? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really remember any of it. I just remember that Rasputin was in it and his like body parts keep falling off. And that's really all I remember. That's something so, you would remember, Chris. Yeah, You're like, yeah. oh yeah, skeleton. Well, it's really historically accurate, that movie. So <laughs> I, I, it stuck with me. Uh, yeah, so that's Anastasia. I think the songs are actually really good. And, and, you know, in theory, it would make a great stage musical. They just sort of botched it a little bit with this Bad. one but um okay and then i also watched joker oh twisted crazy guys i watched joker uh <laughs> i i listened to i've actually listened to so many podcasts and like read so much about this movie that i i've kind of forgotten what you guys said about it in your spoiler episode but um peter is it okay if i like talk about the ending of this movie can we just like tell people to fast forward a little bit because i feel like it's been out long enough now where most of the listeners of this podcast have probably seen it if they're interested, I right? I still haven't seen it. Oh, you haven't? Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> can you talk I, in, in... You know what? I'll, I'll just, like, I'll just mute you guys. You can talk about it. Um, are you sure, HD? Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. I don't care. Okay, all right. Uh, so... You can fast forward to the 56 mark in this podcast to avoid this Joker spoiler discussion. Thank you. Yes. So I was just wondering, you know, I... I I don't really have a take on this movie as much as um, the ending sort of confused me a little bit. Like how much of this movie is actually in Joker's head. And I think you guys touched on this, but I just wanted to get your, your opinions on it real quick. I normally hate this kind of reading, but there's a specific cut at the end of this movie that really leaves me wondering about like the intentionality of really the whole thing. So when Joker's in the institution in the last scene and he's sitting across from that social worker, he laughs and she says something like, can he tell me what's funny? And then the film cuts from Joker's face to that shot of Bruce Wayne in the alley standing over the bodies of his murdered parents. And then we're back in the asylum and Joker says something like, um, you know, you probably won't get the joke. But the thing is, Joker wasn't in that alley during that moment. He didn't have anything to do uh, directly with uh, Bruce Wayne's parents being killed. So he has no way of knowing what that scene looked like. So do you think that that is, I don't know, I guess a piece of evidence in the case that this entire thing, or at least from a certain point, could be imagined for him? What what do you guys make of the fact that, like, that specific imagery is in his head, but he wasn't there to see it? I don't think he's remembering the specific image. I think it's him recalling that his rampage caused the death of the Waynes. And he it, it's, it's less of a literal him remembering that image or more of a reminder of what he's thinking about. I, I goodness. If Todd Phillips comes out and says the whole thing with a Joker fantasy, I'm going to burn down my house. So I, <laughs> I, I, I hate the kind of ending. Yeah. I normally do, do too. It's just, I don't know. It struck me that uh, I thought that was, I mean, I guess, yeah. Like Jacob, you're saying like, um, uh, Arthur Fleck at that point had either read about or saw on TV when he, he was in the asylum or something that the Wayne family died. And that moment was just him like, envisioning what he thought it looked like, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was... Well, you put it much more succinctly than I did, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I think that read is accurate because that shot of Bruce Wayne and his parents is, like, very comic booky, and 
There was that video that came out a little while ago where Todd Phillips was dissecting the opening scene of Joker. And he points out that there's one specific shot in the opening scene that he deliberately shot to look like a, a comic book splash page. And then he said that he tried very hard to have not many shots like that in the movie. Cause you know, it's not, it's not your average comic book movie. So <laughs> the fact that he shot, he shoots that, that Wayne tableau in a way where it looks exactly like it looks in like every single comic book mm-hmm. makes me think that that, that specific image is something that's in his head but i don't buy the whole movies in his head but primarily because i don't want it to be because like jacob i think yeah. that's terrible so yeah, yeah. I, I, I think todd phillips wants that question to be out there though like i mean he definitely wants it because i talked to him about it and he definitely todd phillips is a jerk peter <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean i coming out of this uh ben and i you know i i know we had this discussion on the podcast about you know does this movie say anything and i thinking about that i was thinking about what you would think of this movie because i know you are always looking for kind of the underlying like messages and what you know a film is saying like did you get anything more out of this than we did no i don't think so i think jacob um encapsulated a lot of my thoughts uh on the podcast i don't i don't really want to go into it just so we don't have like too much repetition but I, i just think the movie is like so um you know, the the aesthetic choice to set it in the 80s just didn't bring anything to it. It just seemed like he was doing that, you know, and like, I actually, I listened to the Slash Filmcast uh, review of it as well, and they, they brought up a ton of great points. So I would just encourage people to listen back to the spoiler episode and that to really, like, all of my thoughts are sort of mishmashed around in there. But um, I think uh, Jacob's points on the, on the spoiler episode were uh, more reflective of mine than anybody else's. Okay. Um, so that was Joker. What, did you see anything else this week? Oh yes, and then yeah, maybe we could signal HT that it's safe to come back. But um, but yeah, I, I also saw uh, In the Shadow of the Moon, which is a movie that both um, Brad and Chris and Jacob have you seen this as well or not yet? Uh, I did see a Fantastic Fest, yes. Okay, so I know that yeah, the three of you guys saw it, and I think Brad, you were talking about it recently, and um, and uh, I, I really like this movie a lot. I, you guys sort of um talked it up and and we're talking about the sort of procedural elements mixed with like sci-fi stuff and i think this is like it's very close to being one of on my top 10 films of the year i don't think it's going to be there ultimately it's probably like hovering in the top 15 somewhere but it's like really really wonderfully executed it's it's it reminded me of like walking into a bookstore and pulling a book off the shelf that had a really cool cover and going home and being like wow this is like a an a hidden pulp gem like it's just really really put together wonderfully it it it's one of those movies that um i feel like a lot of modern films the writing is not great and this one it just settles into its own groove so wonderfully and knows exactly what kind of movie it is and uh i, I don't know i have not really seen anything else from this director jim Mickle, and this makes me want to watch all of his stuff and and watch the stuff that uh, Gregory Weidman and Jeff Talk, the writers, also wrote. I think they have a, a new movie coming out called Sovereign with uh, Mahershala Ali um, that's in development. So I'm excited to see what that is because I just thought that the the uh, this movie really lived up to the, the promise of its premise, which um, is really all I want in any sort of genre movie. So I, I would highly recommend In the Shadow of the Moon. That's on Netflix right now. Okay. And that does it for no oh, no we have uh, HT HT are you back here? I'm back. Okay, good. What have you been watching this week? 
I watched the New York Film Festival closing night film, Motherless Brooklyn, which is not a total disaster. This is... <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the, the pull quote they use. On there the you go. Yeah, this is Edward Norton's long gestating passion project that he's been trying to get, get off the ground since... Um, early 2000s and it stars Edward Norton as a private investigator with Tourette syndrome whose mentor uh, played by Bruce Willis gets mysteriously killed when working a case and he is obsessed with finding the reason for his mentor's death and ends up retracing his steps and finding himself entangled in this vast web of uh, corporate conspiracy and corruption in 1950s New York City. Uh, this is an adaptation of a 1999 novel by Jonathan Lethem, uh, which was set in modern times at the time it was written. But for some reason, Edward Norton decided to uh, move the setting back to 1950s New York. And I can't exactly justify why he would move it back then, except for the aesthetic. This film is very very eager to to be a noir and very eager to prove that it's a noir. There's very on-the-nose music cues complete with these jazz trumpet solos that uh, appear every time there's like a sad moment. And um, of this, it's very stylishly directed by Edward Norton, uh, it's very much in lines of neo-noirs like Chinatown. Um, and a lot of there are a lot of uh, narrative parallels to Chinatown too. You could tell that Edward Norton wanted to make, to direct his own Chinatown, complete with a few similar plot details and twists. Um, I can't say that he completely succeeds, although there are really enjoyable moments and the performances by Norton, Guguma Bathara, and Willem Dafoe, who's just delightfully unhinged in this movie, are really engaging and fun to watch. But it just uh, feels kind of a baffling film. It, uh, it felt to me when I was watching it almost like a fake movie that you see in a comedy, like in Tropic Thunder, for example, when they have the montage of movies that uh, the actors starred in, it kind of feels like one of those films just because it's so on the nose and so um, obvious in, every, in, its all, in all of its choices. Um, but it is, um, there are like moments, there are things to like about it. And I think the performances really save it from uh, being a waste of time. So I'm not sure you're, kind of recommending it it's fine it's fine <laughs> okay it's that sounds like uh if it comes on tv you should watch it yes okay that's, that's it uh okay let's move on to what we've been eating jacob what have you been eating this week i spent the morning before haunted housing on day one in dallas at the state fair of texas and after years of being told that fried fair food is amazing and delicious I have learned that it's not. It's all garbage and bad. You are, you are bad. wrong, Jacob. You're so <laughs> Look, wrong. A waffle stuffed with a fried uh, with fried chicken should be good, but no, it was not. Uh, fried mashed potatoes, like deep fried in the balls, not good. It was all You're bad. picking the things that seem interesting but aren't going to taste good. Peter, it was all bad. We, I, I, I tried fried, fried chicken. Oreo? They were bad. I've had fried Oreos in the past. I've had them, and those are good, but... That knowing this this particular fair's track record of my morning, it would have been crappy, so I did not have them there. <laughs> but I found myself incredibly disappointed by State Fair of Texas's uh, everything. What, what, a, what a lousy morning that was. Uh, but yeah, um, I do want to talk for one second, though. I'll open the floor to everybody on this one. Every time I go to the Dallas area to visit my wife's family, 
I have to go to On the Border, which is a Chili's esque chain restaurant of, you know, n- in no way authentic Tex Mex food that I enjoy tremendously. I can spend, I can eat every damn meal of my life at On the Border. And that sounds ridiculous, but there aren't any in Austin. And it's like saying, in a city that has lots of great cuisine, it's like, why am I going to Under Border? Just because I like it. I'm reminded of my sister-in-law lived in Germany and she, you know, surrounded by culture and, you know, delicious food. And after a year in Germany, came back to America and demanded the first thing she did was eat at Chili's because she just needed Chili's, damn it. So everybody here at this podcast, tell me, what is your chain food restaurant that you love wholeheartedly, even though you probably shouldn't. Mine's on the border. <laughs> I think you've done this before, Jacob. This sounds so familiar. I think we've had this conversation last time you went to Dallas and ate it on the border. <laughs> really? Did I really? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, yes. All right, well, let's do this again. What's your favorite chain restaurant, Ben? <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I think Chipotle maybe might be... Uh, but, like, that... That, that, that's a know. fast food. Well, you, I think Jacob's talking about like a sit-down place, right? Yeah, no counter service. There has to be a server, a very um, distressing server, bringing you a margarita. God, come back to me. I'll try to think of something. I got something. Well, I, I got a lot because I, for years, I was in San Francisco where they had no chain restaurants. And I, I came from a place that had all chain restaurants. And I love chain restaurants. And even in LA, there's not like many chain restaurants. But I, I think my favorite is... Cheesecake Factory, just because there's like so many, like their Buffalo Blasts are amazing. Yes, their Buffalo Blasts are one of my Achilles heels, Peter. But yeah. I would actually argue that that's not a bad place. To, do you know what I mean? Like you said, like a bad chain restaurant that I like. Peter, Cheesecake Factory is a nightmare house, but I love it. A place, <laughs> a place of disaster, but I love it. I don't, know. I don't think it's a disaster. I guess the one I would kind of go to bat for which you're gonna you guys are gonna make fun of me for is olive garden i olive actually fun. i actually kind of love olive garden i know it's not good italian food but it, it it's good for me and uh they either when you're there your family come on yeah <laughs> the breadsticks are the best breadsticks in the world i have never eaten at olive garden wow that's like genuinely impressive for somebody who lives in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> and who lives in New York, where there is the best Olive Garden in Times Square, apparently. Um, my chain restaurant of choice is Outback Steakhouse. Don't care what anybody says. I love the Bloomin' Onion, and I love the Alice Springs Chicken. Don't even get steak there. Just love the Alice Springs Chicken. Well, the the Bloomin' Onion is an American classic, Brad. That's like a million dollar bill. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a great place to go to on the keto diet too. Like six, six for the fact that you can't get the blooming onion. But yeah, it's uh, right, what's yours? Uh, I don't get a lot of chain restaurants. I'm realizing now. Uh, I was gonna say Chipotle too because I occasionally have a craving for Chipotle, and there aren't any near me, so I actually like venture out to Manhattan to get chipotle um i will say what will i say is california <laughs> is california kitchen a pizza chain kitchen? restaurant so we're talking sorry? about california, california pizza kitchen? kitchen yeah california pizza kitchen yeah, yeah that, that definitely counts here i think okay that's it um chris do you have one to give me one more second to think about this <laughs> Uh, I actually don't because I'm better than all of you, I guess. Hey, <laughs> I, I, I made up one for this game. Chris, I don't, you don't go to any I chain restaurants. Know. You don't Chris go to. Have one. I mean, like when I was like in high school, I would like go to like like Applebee's with my like friends, I guess. But like, I haven't been to 
something like that in a in a very I long time. Right. I'm going to keep the kitchen in ten years. Okay, there was one at my mall, and I went there with my family on Fridays occasionally. So there. <laughs> Chris's default answer is Applebee's, which is the worst at chain restaurant. So congratulations, Chris. <laughs> okay, all right, you're welcome. Um, I think maybe Cracker Barrel does that count? Uh, yes, Cracker Barrel definitely counts, and it's okay. delicious. Yeah, there we go. So uh, sausage biscuits at Cracker Barrel. That's my answer. Okay, I've never had on the border though. That must be something not in my area, not in the West Coast. Yeah, I'm not sure where where their reach extends, but they're kind of scattered across Texas for sure. Yeah. Okay, Brad, what have you been eating this week? Oh wait, Brad, did you say your favorite chain restaurant? I did. Yeah, it was Outback Steakhouse. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, sorry. Uh, what have you been eating this week? Uh, so I only picked up one uh, new thing uh, over the past week, and it's a new cereal that I happened to stumble upon uh, at Aldi. Uh, they had peanut butter and jelly puffs, which I immediately saw and I was like, oh, this is going to be really good. And damn it if it wasn't fantastic. Uh, it's basically Reese's peanut butter puffs, but uh, it had it's the uh, the berry pieces that are like the jelly pieces, rather. They're basically like crunch berries from uh, Captain Crunch. And it goes so well with the peanut butter. It's probably like one of the best cereals that I've had in recent memory. Um, and I'm somebody who loves Reese's Peanut Butter Puffs already, so this was just right up my alley. So if you have an Aldi's near you, go try and find Peanut Butter and Jelly Puffs because they are delicious. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. I guess I'm the only one that's been playing something this week. On Saturday night, I went to my friend Jeff's birthday party, and it was being held at this place called Sandbox VR, which is one of these virtual reality uh, you know, places. Uh, it, it's they have these rooms that are like these large rooms with green screen all over and you put on like these motion tracking things on your hands and your feet and you get a gun and uh the the one we played was called Deadwood Mansion and this was a 20 minute game uh basically we're inside a mansion while zombie the zombie apocalypse was going on and uh taking over and basically everybody had like different guns like someone had like two pistols i had like uh one of those Big, bigger guns uh and it uh it was okay it was um the, the interesting thing about this one was i've done a lot of the room scale vrs like the void where you actually get to touch the walls and stuff like that. this like you're in the center of a room and you're basically just in that room virtually and physically for the entire game this one was more of a game than i think an experience and i think i like more of the ones that like feel like an experience the the biggest part of or the, the biggest i think thing that added to this was that um dead fans so at one point like the the doors burst open and like a gust of wind so you felt that so there wasn't like many like 4d experiences but you did have you know this is unlike playing vr at home because you're in the room with all your other friends so i think we're there for like with uh, me and like five others and uh that is where it becomes kind of fun is because if you die in this game, if you get bit by a zombie and die, you you yourself like everything goes kind of like gray scale and like it, you, you are seeing what's happening around you, but it's almost like you're a ghost. And the only way to be revived is someone needs to come over to you and like touch your shoulder for 10 seconds. Um, and that mechanism of bringing people back from the dead is kind of cool because it, once everybody dies, then you lose. So you, you're always like trying to bring people back from the dead that have been bit um so that was a little bit fun but uh honestly i think i like more of the the void what the void is doing than sandbox vr but uh yeah check that out sandbox vr uh okay 
That brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob. Normally, this is the part of the show where I'll open up the gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and implied put downs by Louis but, A. Safian. But you're not going to do that this time. I'm not going to, and here's why. Oh, this is last great. week. This is awesome. You, last week, you made it clear that you do not like the book. You don't care for the book, and you <laughs> try to cancel out the book by wait, asking wait, for wait, Halloween insults. Wait, I only, I only made this clear last week. You made it clear to me that you had it by saying you wanted Halloween insults and I couldn't read them from the book if they weren't there. So I realized, Peter, what you and the crew need is an education how much worse things could be. Oh, no. Oh, God. So I have opened up <laughs> HTTPS colon slash slash www.jokesforus.com slash holiday jokes slash Halloween jokes HTML. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't think it could get bad, uh, worse than the title of the book. What do you call a dancing ghost? Polka haunt us. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately like this better than the book. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what ghost is the best dancer? The boogeyman. Why are they all about dancing ghosts? What, is... <laughs> what do you call a cheesy Halloween dance? The monster mash. You're all about dancing. Yeah, Why he, he, he must be on children? the section of dancing ghosts. Why couldn't the witch have, have children? Why? Why couldn't the witch have children? Why? Her husband had a Halloweenie. Wow. Oh. oh. <laughs> no dancing in that one. I'm going to write life on a plain white t-shirt and hand out lemons to strangers. Ugh. Ugh. Oh, Halloween, the only candy I'm interested in swings from a pole and has daddy issues. Oh, oh good God. Wow. <laughs> wow. What the fuck? <laughs> Halloween equals an excuse for girls to dress like sluts. Is that it? <laughs> wait, wait. That's a joke. <laughs> wait, wait, you were reading that from the page? From <laughs> HTTP colon.com. Halloween equals an excuse. Girls are dressed up like sluts. Jacob tricked us. He started off with these great, fantastic jokes, and then he just took it into a, a weird, weird place. When do ghouls and goblins cook their victims? On Friday. Ah. <laughs> what do you call a Halloween boner? I don't know. Petrified wood. <laughs> Jacob, you gotta save some of these. October's a long month. Man. Yeah, we got the whole month. What do you call a hot dog with nothing inside it? I don't know. It's a Halloween. Again? <laughs> Can't use that twice. Wild party at the haunted house. The whole vibe was an anything ghost. All right, please. How do you write a book about Halloween? With a ghost writer. Oh. What do the movies Halloween and Shrek have in common? They oh, both wonder Myers. how... Michael Myers. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's, I'm going to, that's a fact. But I'm going to celebrate Halloween the same way I always do, by murdering a bunch of teens by the lake. 
Sincerely, <laughs> Michael Myers. <laughs> Sincerely. I don't even think. First of all, I think the police need to investigate the author of this page. Listen, the lake is, is Friday the 13th, not Halloween. This list is wrong. I Two demand. monsters went to a Halloween party. Suddenly, one said to the other, a lady just rolled her eyes at me. What should I do? The other monster replied, be a gentleman and roll them back to her. Ah. Uh, well, Why think... was the girl afraid of the vampire? Because he's going to bite her? He was all bite and no bark. Where does Count <laughs> Dracula because usually eat his lunch? Like jokes. Where does Count Dracula <laughs> usually eat his lunch? At the end of this list? At the cafeteria. Okay, uh, I think my bus is here, guys. I <laughs> what does a vampire never order at a restaurant? Um, a steak sandwich. Why didn't the vampire bite Taylor Swift? Jacob, how do we, how do we make him stop? Jokes are from Buffy. Because this he is, had bad is, blood. This is the worst uh, punishment. This is the worst punishment. One of your fault, Peter. I hope you're happy. You know, yeah, this, this list goes fault. on infinitely. J- like, Jacob, having... next week we just need the book. Oh, Peter, wow. are you asking for the book? <laughs> Peter, are you asking for the book to come back? I, I guess. I declare a victory. <laughs> for the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.